Here in America, work is in trouble. We've offshored our manufacturing, sent away good jobs, and lost so much ability to make things. American Giant is a company that's pushing back against this tide. They make high-quality clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more right here in the USA. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, promo code STAPLE20. Hi folks, be sure to visit my website at doctor-history.com for a short personal video message to listen to the latest stories and to leave a comment. Uh, right now, let's go on the phone to the man that is the one, the only doctor of history, Dr. History. Morning, Zed. How you doing? Well, we're hanging in, hanging on. We're at a little bit lower level on the power than we like. Uh, it may be a little hard to hear you this morning, but we'll do our best. And uh, what's going on in the world of historical stories and uh, the memories of the past? Okay, we're going to go back a long ways back, a little over 200 years. Oh, your birthday. 1792. Oh, okay. All right, so there's a mysterious young American, and he was experiencing a world that uh, as yet had been unnamed and unimagined. Uh, and this was, you know, a dozen years before Lewis and Clark uh, started their expedition. Okay. But this bold American adventurer, he was only 20 years old, had just spent two years traveling and living with the people of one of the most remote and least known western regions of this continent. And exactly what Philip Nolan did and where he went in 1791 and 1792, it's kind of hard to really figure out exactly, but we do know that he was a native of Natchez and that he had secured a passport and trading license from the Spanish governor of Louisiana and Florida. Now, otherwise, his adventure exists only in kind of the barest outline. He followed in the footsteps of French traders from Louisiana uh, who had made their way into the villages like those of the Mandan and the Hidatsas and on the Missouri, and then uh, uh, even uh, as far west as the uh, Comanches. But uh, if we accept the sketchy references to this adventure, this Nolan, Philip Nolan, favorably impressed the Comanches, and it was a people with a highly developed regard for the kind of the masculine virtues with American wilderness skills and the Comanches, in turn, showed Nolan a country that hardly any Euro-Americans had seen. And he was deep in the plains where they traveled. So the early 1790s seldom springs to mind when we consider important periods in the history of the American West. But for the southern stretches of the West, Nolan's barely known trip would prove significant indeed. What had drawn Philip Nolan West in the first place was a dream of wealth. But in his case, it wasn't gold or precious metals or even uh, beaver, furs, things like that. Uh, horses are what interested him, and feral horses that over the previous century had sped, spread all across the southwest. Now, the French-Spanish traders in Louisiana had shown Nolan how to build corrals and to catch these, the Spanish word I think is mestinos or wild ones, mustangs. And Nolan was becoming good at it, but after two years with the Comanches, he'd come to understand that just as traders in the north could barter with the Indians for the furs, 
American traders didn't have to build pens and corral the wild herds. They could just go buy horses and mules uh, that did swell on the southern frontier directly from the Comanches. So they didn't have to go out and hunt them. Uh, and the Comanches had so many animals that they were uh, said, quote, to us like grass. In other words, they had so many horses, they uh, didn't know what to do with all of them. But that information, along with the skills he developed running and corralling wild horses, was all Nolan needed. He would mount a second expedition into the country he called the Great Plains in 1794-95 and a third one in 1795-96. And when he returned from his third trip, Nolan took 250 Mustangs all the way to Frankfort, Kentucky, where uh, his striking western animals brought as much as $150 apiece. That was in 1797. I mean, 150 that would have been a lot of money back then. Absolutely. But uh, he was set on doing a fourth expedition, and he had $7,000 in trade goods, and this time he returned in 1798, and they were driving a herd estimated between 1,000 to 2,500 horses. Well, Philip Nolan was on his way to becoming a legend. He'd become uh, begun something destined to outlive him by decades. Uh, but anyway, uh, w- with the first two-year journey that he went on, uh, he actually got out clear out here by the Rocky Mountains, and he became known uh, as the Mexican Traveler. And he'd actually launched one of the uh, kind of intriguing yet little-known big stories in the history of the early American West. And I'm going to bet hardly anybody's heard of this guy named Philip Nolan. No, I have not. I had not. But the early Western horse trade uh, has remained little, uh, you know, little known for several good reasons. For one thing, during the period when Spain was still hanging on to the Southwest until the success of the Mexican War of Independence in 1821, uh, in other words, removal of wild horses was illegal without having Spanish authority Hmm. or, or permission. So in the 1780s, Spain had proclaimed all these horses to be the property of the king. Well, nevertheless, American horse traders uh, who followed in Nolan's footsteps never bothered to get uh, either a passport or license from the Spanish authorities, and eventually the horse trade would acquire kind of a a bad reputation for supplying Indians with guns and encouraging raiding, and so for nearly its entire history, the Western horse trade was kind of an underground economy carried on by people who largely did not want to draw attention to themselves. Well, when the Pueblo Revolt of 1680 drove the Spaniards out of New Mexico, the Navajos, the Utes, the Shoshones, the Salish, the Nez Perce, Blackfeet, Crow, Cayuses, Crees, uh, throughout the northwest in Canada, uh, they had all these horses, and a lot of them escaped out, out just to run wild. Now, another source of wild horses in the southwest were the abandoned early missions of Texas, from which the Franciscans, the monks, turned out both both mares and stallions. So there again, you've got a, a source where you're going to get a lot of horses. So the wild horse herds by Nolan's time had grown to huge, huge numbers. And one mid-19th century Texas rancher reported, uh, he said, quote, immense herds all over the western country, as far as the eye or telescope can sweep the horizon, the whole country seemed to be running. 
And then there was a Texas Ranger, his name was John Duvall, and he said, quote, Nothing over the dead level prairie was visible except a dense mass of horses and the trampling of their hooves sounded like the roar of the surf on the rocky coast. Now, Zeb, I, I heard of wild horses, but I didn't realize that such a huge amount, thousands and thousands. No, I hadn't either. I have a question for you, if you okay. don't mind, because you know everything, okay? <laughs> now, didn't you say that uh, this man, Philip Nolan, uh, sold earlier, you were talking, I think, 1,500 head of horses, right? Yeah. Okay. And you said he sold them for $150 a head, right? Right. Okay. So we're talking $225,000, right? Okay. In those days, my question is, where did they get the money? Where did they have the available funds? They didn't just go down to a local bank and draw on a check or whatever. Where did they yeah. go to get all the, the money and the funding? You know, I have no idea because, you know, he took them to sell, and maybe there was just enough buyers that they all bought a little here and a little there until they got them all sold. So I, that is a huge amount, That you know. But, you know, the, a lot of the Indian uh, people participated in the horse trade, too. But when American traders entered the game, the Comanches, they kind of controlled and put their stamp on it. And through the 18th century, they affected a kind of a cultural and economic transformation, uh, becoming not just bi bison hunters and raiders, but the most uh, horse uh, people in all of the Western history, mm -hmm. the Comanches. They caught, they bred, and raided for horses, and they managed to get bigger and bigger herds. And when Americans first encountered the Comanches, they were absolutely amazed at the number of horses and mules that they owned. But they also traded them north to horse-poor tribes up in the northern part, and they would give them away to uh, uh, try to make friends with, like, the Kiowas, the Cheyennes, the Wichita's. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, about this time, Vice President Jefferson first heard about Philip Nolan and his wild horses, and he was convinced he needed to meet this man. So in 1799, Jefferson wrote Nolan asking to buy one of his, quote, Western animals, huh. and which he says, I am told are so remarkable for the singularity and beauty of their colors and forms. Well... In May of 1800, Nolan actually left for Monticello with letters of introduction and a beautiful paint stallion for this future president. Well, something went wrong. Uh, possibly somebody in Kentucky offered Nolan more money for the paint than he could refuse. <laughs> or maybe he lost the horse in gambling. Who knows? But uh, however close they got, Nolan and Jefferson never did actually meet. Well, that fall, uh, Nolan left on his fifth wild horse expedition. So now we're in 1800, uh, headed out west, and before leaving Natchez, uh, he had two dozen good men and was taking a big quantity of trade goods. Uh, this time, however, he did not have a passport or permission from the Spanish officials. Uh, this was not good. So to Nolan's favorite Mustang in country south of present-day Fort, Fort Worth, Texas, this is where they built some corrals and they began to run horses in what's called the Grand Prairie. Mm -hmm. So now, in March of 1801, a Spanish force sent out to arrest him. They located his camp, and Nolan refused to surrender. Well, the Spaniards attacked, 
and a single shot hit Nolan Square in the forehead. Uh oh. That pretty much put an end to his dreams uh, <laughs> and everything else. The Spaniards captured more than a dozen of Nolan's men, although seven of them actually did uh, escape. But Nolan's adventures were over, uh, but word had gotten out. The West had a wealth in the form of horses. Uh, it was dangerous business, and Nolan, of course, lost his life, and others had been arrested. But uh, he and his group had actually made... Uh, uh, and one herd, just $60,000 on just one smaller herd. So, you know, it's that uh, for this part of uh, early history, the horse trading remained kind of an underground economy. They kind of had to sneak in and get the horses and get back out. Well, I think it goes. I think it goes without question that if people really are fair and honest in giving an appraisal of what really helped build this nation, it was the horse. Whether it was the Eastern Seaboard with all the carriage horses and the pack horses and everything else that was used to get transportation uh, from the seaports inland, or whether it was the Old West with the mountain men going all the way way to the cattle ranching, etc. The horse honestly built this great country, the United States of America. Well, and if you think about the Lewis and Clark expedition, yes. you know, uh, they were saved by the fact that they were finally able to get some horses and be able to continue their journey. That's right. And, and, you know, the horse business itself is still, I believe, and somebody can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think it is the third largest agricultural industry in the United States, the horse industry. I think it's still up there with all the different uh, uh, attractions to it. So, I mean, we're very blessed to have a strong horse industry. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, uh, while the West, these early Mustangers and horse traders, you know, they kind of kept a low profile. Some of their stories and adventures have come down to us. In fact, one, in 1794-95, there was a 27-year-old guy, a Philadelphia gunsmith named John Calvert, and he spent 14 months chasing horses with the Wichitas and the Comanches before a Spanish patrol uh, snagged him. Uh, but two horse traders from this era kind of stand apart because they actually left first-hand accounts of their experiences in a journal, uh, like uh, this one guy in a uh, 10-month expedition in 1808 and 9, a guy by the name of Anthony Glass, he described the sort of adventure that, that probably Nolan had had years before. Mm. But he left a fascinating uh, kind of a representation of the horse trader's life. He described the difficulties of bartering with the Wichita's and the Comanches, and you know, they didn't want to trade their best horses. They So they, it took a bit of uh, ingenuity to trade with the Indians. Now, the other account comes from a horse trader. His name is Thomas James, and he wrote a book called Three Years Among the Indians and Mexicans. And this describes his two trips into the Oklahoma Plains. Now, that's a little, a little later, between 1821 and 1824. But uh, there's no guarantee the Comanches wouldn't immediately steal back the horses that you just traded for. <laughs> so, you know, you didn't know once you took off if uh, a few days down the road you were going to get uh, attacked or 
you know, and those horses all come back. Of all the tribes, Dr. History, I've got to ask you this. Uh, of all the tribes of Indians in the United States, it has been uh, asserted that uh, the Comanches were absolutely the greatest horsemen of all time. I'm sure you've probably heard that. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, you look at the different breeds, and, you know, of course, the Nez Perce with their Appaloosas. Right. You know, I mean, uh, amazing horses. But, you know, this uh, this James, uh, uh, Thomas James, uh, like I say, he uh, had gotten some horses, and uh, uh, they, had a, they had a herd of 323 uh, really nice animals, and they started back to St. Louis. But uh, a horse trader needed a little bit of luck, and this guy seemed fresh out of luck. He had disasters. He had stampedes, hordes of horse flies, theft, uh, one thing after another. By the time the party made St. Louis, they had five horses. Five? <laughs> they had five horses left out of 323. Oh, my goodness yeah. sakes. Wow. You know, I was really not aware of all the different uh, trail drives, if you will, of horses going back into the center of our country, Missouri, St. Louis area, whatever it is. Uh, are there more reports about many more of the uh, of the capture and the trailing of horses back to the eastern part of the country? You know, when you think about uh, trailing animals, you really don't hear much about uh, no. horse herds being, no. uh, you know, by the thousands being taken, you know. But, uh, you know, in the 1880s, they estimated that there was at least 50,000 wild horses uh, still living, you know, uh, in West Texas. And, uh, you know, it, it gradually, of course, uh, got less and less. But, in fact, you know, there was a point where ranchers actually paid their cowboys to shoot some of these horses on site because they were, you know, they were taking up uh, cattle grazing That's land right. And, That's right. Know, but, uh, so, you know, it, it, it was a fascinating thing. Of course, we still have wild horses down in the Nevada area, you know, and, uh, you know, there's a little controversy on that. But, uh, anyway, as a horse lover, you know, you, you and I, we cannot stand the thought of uh, a horse being shot or... Uh, mistreated. Well, yeah, that's all well and good, but then on the other hand, uh, mistreatment is a two-way street to where if they're taking away forage and food that is paid for by the ranchers and desecrating and depriving the livestock of uh, their da daily dues to survive, then there's got to be some management to get them off that range. Right, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, I, I've read some things about uh, lately in the you know, later 1900s, that uh, 1945, 1970, 76, that you know, there's things going on to uh, to kind of care for these animals. So. Well, it takes a lot of money, my friend, and oh, money yeah. does yeah. rule the world, unfortunately. Well, and you know, with cattle, you can eat a cow, but. Uh, <laughs> At least I've never eaten a horse, I don't think. Well, just don't go to France. Okay. <laughs> Listen, well, uh, great. Know where I'd have the chance, but I, yeah, I make sure that uh, what I'm eating is not a horse. All right. Well, listen, I want to tell you how much I enjoyed your story. And uh, any word from, uh, you said, uh, I've got a minute left, but you said every week you wanted to thank various people and acknowledge various people. Do you have anybody today? You know, I do not. I haven't heard from anybody this past week. And so, yeah, just go to dr-history.com and 
send me a, a message, and uh, I appreciate the. Actually, I just met a man here just a few minutes ago here that uh, has some information about the town of Bliss and also a book on the post offices of southern Idaho. Oh, okay. They're no longer in existence, some of these little post offices that, that were around, you know. All right. He's going to give me that information. Well, I tell you what, you always do a phenomenal job, and you can tune in every week, ladies and gentlemen, right here on Zebeth Ranch and listen to Dr. History. And I want to thank you very much. Next week, let's try to see if we can't entertain thoughts of being in the same studio. It's a lot more fun than being on the phone. Yep. All right, my friend. We'll just have to see what happens. All right. God bless you, man. Thanks much. Thanks, Ed. All right. I uh, really appreciate him. Dr. History on the air with us this morning. Thank you very much. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards tell them to oppose the durbin marshall credit card bill 